You're listening to the sermon audio from the Shore Church located in North Vancouver. For more information about the Shore, upcoming events, or to donate, you can head to www.theshorechurch.ca. Well, good morning. If I have not said good morning to you, welcome here to the Shore Church. So good to have you. We're in this sermon series right now called uh, the, the Creation Cradle Cross Crown. Four C's. Uh, you can see it. Uh, we're in the cradle this morning. We've got a beautiful cradle up here, uh, a manger of sorts. And uh, so thank you to Shelly for uh, decorating the stage for us. Before I get into this sermon series, though, uh, I came across this book. It's called, it's a Tim Chalice. I don't know how to say his last name, but Chalice, I will say, Tim Chalice. Uh, he wrote a really great book on um, um, see if I can remember the name of the the book, The Discipline of Spiritual Discernment. And he tells a very interesting story at the beginning of his book, and and I want to read it for us today. So we're just going to quickly read this little bit of a story, because I think it ties really well into what we're talking about today and what we're talking about over the series, that we want to find Jesus in the story of the Bible from beginning to the end. And we're in the cradle here today, so it's kind of like Christmas around Easter time. But here's the story. It was 1945 and the world war, or world was at war. Adolf Hitler, the man responsible for beginning the conflict, was dead, having taken his own life in his mountain fortress. A few diehard Nazis held out some hope that Germany's new leader could somehow reverse the tide. Most knew it was far too late, though. The armies of the United States and Great Britain were closing in from the west, and hordes of Russian soldiers were approaching from the east. It was now inevitable that as she had done only three decades earlier, Germany would be forced to surrender to her foes. Yet through her conquest, Germany had amassed an incredible wealth of treasure, much of which was stolen from men and women who had been put to death in the infamous concentration camps. As the Allied armies approached Germany, much of this treasure, gold and silver, paintings and ornaments, was hidden away in mountain caves. Those who knew of Lake Toplitz, though, supposed that some of Hitler's treasure was hidden away in the depths of the lake. And some of this treasure was, in fact, found 40 years later at the bottom of the lake. The crates that were retrieved were filled with hundreds of millions of pounds in counterfeit British currency. The German army had a devious plan. Had the German plan succeeded, millions of citizens, banks, and shops would have been fooled into accepting this worthless money. Such a massive influx of counterfeit currency could prove fatal to a nation's economy. Shops might refuse to sell their goods, fearing that money they receive for their wares would prove worthless. Banks might refuse to accept or distribute cash. Without currency, goods would not exchange hands. Panic and chaos would ensue and the economy of even a great nation could be devastated by such a devious plan. And this plan to infiltrate the British economy is known as Operation Bernard Banknotes. For this counterfeit money not to enter into the economy may may have been one of the many providences of the war. For Operation Bernard, if carried to its planned conclusion, could have changed the course of World War II. Counterfeit currency could have changed the world. I found that story really interesting. And one of those stories that you kind of recognize and, and see and go, man, the, the, the depravity of man and how it enters into all of creation and how you have the depravity of man just bringing counterfeit for their own expectations, own desires uh, to be met. 
And it's hard not to play the what if game in this. Like what if that actually did happen? See, the plan to kill and destroy all that God creates as good is out there. It's, it's really rel- relevant and prevalent in today's society. And because God is the originator of all things, the enemy's only option is to be actually a counterfeit. This is the only option that the enemy has. See, like we learned last week, hatred entered the story of God by way of a curse to the snake. But not only hatred entered, but an action plan, an action plan to reverse that hatred into a redemption plan that reversed that sin that Adam and Eve disobeyed God and reverse it into a redemption plan for our salvation and to renew the fallen world for those who believe and confess in the coming offspring. In this action plan, the initiation of redemption is the offspring of the woman. And this is what we're searching for in all of the scripture through this series. So from the time the curse of Satan in Genesis 3.15 until about 2,000 years ago, these people, the, the, the nation of Israel, the people of God, ever since Adam and Eve were looking for this snake crusher. They're looking for this coming savior. And I will touch on some of these ways today as we look through this and look through this scripture together. But I want to take a look at our outline for this morning. We want to start with something really important to, to find out. And that's why I started with this counterfeit kind of story. And we're going to close a little bit with it as well. But the cradle's fulfilled prophecy. It's really, under, it's really important to find what is the true prophecy that is in our scriptures today. Secondly, we're going to talk about the cradle really quickly. And then third, again, we're going to talk quickly on the irony of the cradle. So we're going to spend most of our time in number one there. So before we jump into the cradle's fulfilled prophecy found in the scripture, let's look at some qualifiers of a prophet. It's actually really important to see what the Bible says about what do we need to look for when it comes to a prophet, especially a prophet that is proclaiming to be from the Lord. So because, again, the enemy wants to bring counterfeit, and he has been doing this from the beginning, Satan claiming or trying to introduce a special knowledge over and above what God has already said with that infamous question, did God really say? Causing confusion, causing maybe, maybe question and going, did God really say that? I, I, maybe I don't know. See, this is a similar question to teachers, preachers, and authors today. They're trying to debunk what God has clearly said and what the church for the last 2,000 years has been saying right from the beginning. So five qualifiers of a prophet. You can see them on the screen, and then we'll go one by one through them. It says a true prophet's words will be fulfilled. Secondly, a true prophet's teachings are consistent with Scripture. The true prophet's teachings will encourage godly living and spiritual benefit. And that's one, that one's really actually incredibly important. Fourth, a true prophet's life will reflect a divine call. And a true prophet will acknowledge Jesus Christ as divine. And this church is what Jesus, the perfect prophet, did on the road to Emmaus, which we opened with last week. On the road to Emmaus, Jesus pointed back to all of Scripture saying, this is who I am. I'm, I'm all over the text of scripture. And he was the true and perfect prophet. So let's look at the first one. A true prophet's words will be fulfilled. 
And you cannot claim to be a prophet and yet not have fulfilled prophecy. And there's, out, there's people out there right now that are claiming to be prophets of God, but yet have never had a prophecy being fulfilled. And so it's really important that this is out there. And it seems like a pretty easy one that you should, a true prophet words will be fulfilled. But yet we believe in all kinds of different people without any fulfilled prophecy. But the first verse I want to take you to is in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 21 to 22. It's on the screen. And it says, if you say in your heart, and this is a great question, you should say this in your heart, how may we know the word that the Lord has not spoken? I think it's a great question. It's a question that we need to ask today as well with the people around us. Because again, the snake is, is trying to question and constantly question the words of the Lord. And the answer is in verse 22. It says it there. It says, when a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. And we touched on this last week, right? Like when the, this is the infallible, inerrant word of God. Like not, like, so when God says something to you, and that has to be a prophetic word to you, and it has to be perfect and clear, and we know that it's not when it's not proven to come to pass. In Jeremiah 28, 8 and 9, it says, The prophets who preceded you and me from ancient times prophesied war, famine, and pestilence. You actually see, I'm reading through the Old Testament right now, and it's just over and over and over again. War, famine, pestilence. War, famine, pestilence. War, famine, pestilence. So it continues and says, as, far th- as for the prophet who prophesies peace, when the word of the pro- that prophet comes to pass, then it will be known that the Lord has truly sent the prophet meaning the war, famine, and pestilence is what will be around us because we live in a counterfeit culture towards God and there's going to be war. This is what sin brings. It brings death. It brings dying. That's why we die because of sin entered into this world and war, famine, and pestilence will always be around us. So when someone comes and proclaims peace and that happens, we know that that is a prophet of the Lord. And this is what Jeremiah was warning the people about. Secondly, a true prophet's teachings are consistent with Scripture. And this is an important one for us today, a really important one. See, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21, it says this, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So the prophet's words today are not equal to Scripture. So if there's someone that proclaims to be a prophet, their words are not prophetically revelatory, meaning that they cannot, their words are not going to be added to the scripture. There's no more revelatory words. There's no more revelatory prophecy today. That is done. It's over. So the words today, there are no new revelations that we might add to the Bible. The prophet of today, if from God, will proclaim things that are consistent with scripture or scripture itself. This is the prophetic word now. When they read the text of Scripture, it's prophesying what God has said. The prophet's words are ones reaffirming the already revealed words of God. Revelation 22, 18, and 19, I think I put it on the screen, but we've read this text before. Basically, this text is just saying, you can read it on the screen, that's why I kept it on there. You can't add to or take away from the word of God. This is a massive warning. And again, we have prophets of today, teachers of today, authors of today, adding to the scripture or the taking it away. 
And so we need to be aware of this. A true prophet's teachings are consistent with Scripture. Thirdly, a true prophet's teachings will encourage godly living and spiritual benefit. Godly living is obeying the words of God. This is godly living. Deuteronomy 13, this is a a really interesting one, and and you need to take notice of it. Verses 1 through 4, it says, If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass, meaning it takes place. And then he goes on to say, let us now go after other gods which you have not known and let us serve them. Like this is interesting, right? There's going to be ones that come up into the midst of the church, into the midst of, your, of the people of God and go, and there's going to be signs and wonders. And it's going to be confusing because look at the signs and wonders are there but yet they're speaking something contrary to the words of God. And this is really important to see. Verse 3, it says, You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice, and you shall serve him and hold fast to him confusing one in the sense that there's going to be signs and wonders around us that are going to be, that's going to take people away from the, the words of God because of signs and wonders. And it's going to come more and more in this day. We have dreamers dreaming dreams. We have all kinds of these things happening right now. We have voices, I heard the Lord say to me in a dream and then a proclamation of something that's contrary to this. And so we need to take notice of this. And that's why reading the whole text of Scripture is incredibly important. What you need to understand in this text is that the authority of the Word of God is the the authority. Not the sign or not the wonder. It's the Word of God is the authority. That's what the Bible is saying. Because the word of that prophet is the one that you're not to follow. Really important. Jeremiah 23, 32 also says, Behold, I am against those who prophesy lying dreams, declares the Lord, and who tell them and lead my people astray by their lies and their recklessness. When I did not send them or charge them, so they did not profit this people at all, declares the Lord. Fourthly, a true prophet's life will reflect a divine call. Jeremiah 23, just Jeremiah, if you notice, there's multiple references to Jeremiah 23. It's a great chapter to read through for this information. But 10 through 11 says this, For the land is full of adulterers, because of the curse the land mourns, and the pastures of the wilderness are dried up. Their course is evil, and their might is not right. So again, looking at what is going on, reflecting of their life, is their life living out according to the Scripture? See, their course is evil and their might is not right. Both prophet and priest are ungodly. Even in my house, I have found their evil, declares the Lord. We see this in a a qualification of a pastor. The qualification of the elder of the church ought to live out the character traits of 1 Timothy 3, Titus chapter 1, and 1 Peter 5. And throughout other portions of the scripture that build on character of the man. And if that person is not living out that, that person is disqualified from ministry. And I'm saying this 
because I need people around me to help me walk in the ways of the Lord. Because like you, I have struggles as well. I have temptations as well. I need people around alongside me, which I do have great men that continually ask me good questions to govern my, help me govern my life that it might be walk in the holiness of God. And a true prophet's life where we reflect a divine call, they'll desire to live for the Lord. It's a deep desire for it. And I just pray that all you men here today and women will desire to live for the Lord with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. In Jeremiah 23, 14, it says, but in the prophets of Jerusalem, I've seen a horrible thing, a horrible thing. They commit adultery and walk in lies. They strengthen the hands of evildoers so that no one turns from his evil. And again, this is like a call, just a simple application for us, men and women. Are we walking away from evil? Like this is talking about adultery. Man, I've never committed adultery, but have we? Like Jesus steps it up a notch in in the New Testament where it says if you look at someone with lust, you've, you've committed adultery already in your heart. So this is, this is not, these are not light things to talk about and discuss. We need to take notice of what is going on inside of us. What is our heart's motivation? Because Jesus and God is saying here, I have seen a horrible thing. And maybe that's in us as well. And it continues, it says, all of them have become like Sodom to me. And it's inhabitants like Gomorrah, which if you know the story of Sodom and Gomorrah was wiped off the face of the earth. The wrath of God is coming for the sin of this world. Matthew chapter 7, 15 and 16 says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Again, we want to be in community that we might recognize one another, that we might call each other to action and admonish one another and encourage one another to lift up and use the gifts that God has given you to build up the church. And these false prophets, they speak a false plan of redemption. And time will tell based on their lives that they are counterfeits. And the counterfeit money that would destroy a nation would also destroy the church. Lastly, a prophet, a true prophet will acknowledge Jesus Christ as divine. And we touched on this just before this sermon series started in 1 John chapter 4, 1 and 2. It's on the screen again. It says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. This is how we know a true prophet. These five qualifiers, there's many more in the scripture, so please do your study and due diligence in that. So it's incredibly important. This is not an exhaustive list by any means. God has given us a fair warning of what are we to be watchful for. So the fulfilled prophecy, the truthful prophecy, the tested prophecy, and the prophecy that lines with the word of God is the prophecy we are to listen to. Most notably, the 66 books that are here in front of me and in front of you. See, this brings us back to the story, the narrative, the narrative that Jesus is from the beginning all the way to the end. And this narrative is, a, is the most impactful story of all of creation. See, this snake crusher originally prophesied by God through the curse 
is now, is now assured to come because the prophecy that was prophesied was actually from God's mouth himself. That there will be an offspring of you, Eve, that will crush the, sa- that, that will crush the snake. And this prophecy was again mentioned with more details as the days and years went on. And as you can imagine, I, 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 don't know, I was imagining this in my office when I was thinking about this text and, and, and thinking about what, what, did, what was Eve thinking? Like when, when, when God curses the snake and Eve and Adam are standing right there and God's rebuking the snake for his actions and says this thing in Genesis 3.15, like your offspring is going to crush the head of the snake. Was Eve thinking like, my firstborn? Is it going to be my firstborn that's going to crush the head of the snake? Is it, is it going to be that one? And we know Cain was not that one. Right? If you know the story of Cain, he didn't crush the head of the snake. He took a rock and crushed the head of his brother. So it couldn't be Cain. And then later on, years go by and then Noah comes along. And we know the story of Noah. He was a righteous man. He, he built an ark for a hundred years. Imagine the ridicule. There's no ocean in sight. And he's building this giant boat. It's incredible. Just a righteous man that lived on the, like the, the persecution, the ridicule that he must have faced. And then the rain started. And he floats on this boat for... 40 days and 40 nights and, and he lands on, the, on Mount Ararat in the middle of Turkey and he comes down and he, out of the goodness and just he wants to produce and he produces this vineyard. Is Noah the snake crusher? No, because he gets drunk on the wine and, and his son defiles him in his tent. It's a horrible story. And then later on, Abraham comes the leader of a people called by God, could this be the snake crusher? No. (laughs) Remember what Abraham did. Wives, you love this part of the story, right? Like you're arm in arm with your wife and you come up to this new land and you're like, hey, just pretend that you're my sister. And he sends sends her off into the land and horrible story. He does it not just once, he does it twice. And then God promises an heir to come through you, through your seed. And Sarah and Abraham, like Adam and Eve, disbelieve the words of God and they go, you know what? Maybe you should just take my maidservant and have a baby with her because we're way too old for this. Again, he's not the snake crusher. He failed miserably. Then there was Moses, a man given the task to free his people from slavery. Could, could this be the snake crusher? Again, he failed in many ways leading God's people through the desert. One of the most notable ways that Moses failed going through the desert, I'm not sure if you remember the story, but God said, I want you to uh, command and speak to the rock and let the waters flow out of it. But instead of speaking and commanding this rock, he hit it twice with his staff. And in the New Testament, we see that this is the reason why he wasn't allowed into the promised land. And we see later on in the story, the rock was actually Jesus. It's foreshadowing of this 
snake crusher that was not him. Then David, a man that would establish a dynasty, could this be the snake crusher? No. David, while he should have been at war, looked off his balcony and saw a beautiful woman and slept with her and impregnated her. And then to make even matters even more horrible, he had, his, had her husband killed so that he would cover up his sin and shame. See, all these men but in, failed miserably, but in their failure, it gave a shadow of what a coming Savior might look like. Just gave a shadow. See, Noah, man of righteousness and faith. Abraham, the good father of a people, trusting in the word of God for an heir. Then fulfilling that hardest test that anyone could receive when he was given an heir was to lay that son down and sacrifice him. And he was fully willing to do so, and he did. He took Isaac up the mountain. Remember, Isaac, another foreshadow of this coming snake crusher, carrying wood up the hill, foreshadowing the cross, carrying the wood up to, to sacrifice himself, and to, to build the altar, to lay on the altar, but yet Isaac wasn't the snake crusher either. He wasn't good enough to be the sacrifice because he was sinful just like you and I. There needed to be something else. See, Moses was another man that, as I mentioned, that God made a covenant with, and he was to be the instrument to free God's people for 450 years of, from slavery of Egypt. And, and through the power of God, through these amazing plagues, God showed and revealed himself over and over and over again, showing the people of God that he is the one that is to be trusted in. He was a man that went up a mountain as well and was given the Ten Commandments. And these Ten Commandments are the law. They're the law to reveal the sin of mankind. That's what the law was meant to do. It's like a mirror. The law is like a mirror showing your sin, your depravity. There's no way you can live up to these things. It's impossible. Showing your sin. And he was a man that couldn't live up to them either. Then David, the shepherd boy, turned king. Was this the one? A young boy slaying a giant, a lion with his bare hands, a shepherd boy, a musician that wrote and sang praises to his creator. And again, no, because David, being a man after the heart of God, was still a man. A man with a fleshy nature that chooses sin like you and I over surrendered to the Lord. But the prophecies of Scripture do speak bringing a coming hope a coming hope of a Messiah to be in the line of David. And God used all of these foreshadows to point to him as the true only Savior. This is the fulfilled prophecy of point number one. In Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, you know this verse well if you've read through the scripture. We read it oftentimes at Christmas time. It says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. This is speaking of the eternal action of Jesus. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, he's going to be in the line of David to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from the, this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. 
No man will do this. The zeal of the Lord will do this. This is the foreshadowing, the prophecy over and over, pointing back to the beauty of God and his love for his people. Earlier in Isaiah, we see more specifics of this amazing snake crusher to come. In Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, it says, Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Going back to Genesis 3.15, saying the offspring of you, Eve, will come. The virgin birth. This is the virgin calling of Mary, going, you will have this offspring. You will have this snake crusher come out of you. And these prophecies, all these prophecies in Isaiah 9 and 7 were fulfilled 500 years later in Matthew chapter 1, 22 to 23, Luke chapter 1, 26 to 31, and Romans chapter 1, 3. Matthew 1, Luke 1, Romans 1. All fulfilled. See, then another prophet of God named Micah gets even more specific writing. In Micah chapter 5, verse 2, it says, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from the old, from ancient days. See, the snake crusher will be a coming king. In the line of David, born of a virgin, born in Bethlehem. Now the question is, church, are we holding to the lies, the deception, the counterfeit gospel of the prophets of the offspring of Satan? Or are we, blind, are we blinded by this? Or are we ready to surrender to the king of kings and his fulfilled word? I've shown just a snapshot this morning of some of the prophecies of Jesus foreshadow in his coming. Just some of them. But the Bible also warns us that we're going to be blinded. We're going to encounter blind people that have eyes that just don't see, that have ears that just don't hear. It says in 2 Corinthians 3.14, it says, but their minds were hardened for to this day when they read the old covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. See, it's only through Christ that you will receive and understand the fulfilled prophecy. It is by Christ that we understand by way of humility before an almighty God. I can go blue in my face and tell you all of these prophecies. There's actually over 300 prophecies pointing to Jesus. 300. It's amazing. 500 years before he was even born, we have these prophecies. And yet we as a mankind, not saying us as the church, but as mankind, we're blind to them. We don't want to believe them. We rather believe in our pursuit of happiness or our pursuit of joy rather than the pursuit that God has given us to rest in him and him only. And out of that rest in him, you will have your joy. But yet, we play the fool. And we seek all kinds of counterfeits, thinking that they will satisfy. The fulfilled prophecy of the cradle is incredible. It's incredible. Let's look at it now. This is the sweetest story, isn't it? 
Like, I don't know about you, but a lot of times Christmas is one of your favorite times. I love both Christmas and Easter. Incredible times that we can celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ. It's actually the coming Savior, the coming snake crusher that actually rested in this cradle. It is one of my favorite parts of the scripture because I believe every part of this book, but now you have the physical body of Jesus, the physical body of Jesus laying in this manger. It's incredible when you think about it. Not only that, but it is the sure sign, the coming sign that we have been waiting for. The true and only snake rusher has come and it is so sweet. All the prophecies of the Old Testament are now fulfilled in this one amazing time of him celebrating or dropping into the manger. The true and only snake crusher has come. In Luke chapter 2, you can turn to your, in your Bibles. It'll be on the screen as well if you don't have a Bible. But it's so important to see it in the scripture. But in Luke 2, uh, we see this story played out. Like you know the story. Joseph and Mary through registry, had to move their way to Naz- from Nazareth to Bethlehem because of province-wide registration. And because of this province-wide registration that was through a very evil man, Scripture was fulfilled. Again, blows your mind that without that, without that, that registration, then they would have stayed in Nazareth, but yet they moved from Nazareth to Bethlehem. Fulfilling the prophecy of Jesus' birthplace that we already read in Micah 5, 2. And in that same region, you, you see this story. Let me read it for us. It says, in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field. Now, this is a, nor- a weird night. A weird night. Shepherds were not expecting anything. They're just doing their thing, watching over their sheep, keeping watch over their flock by night. And the angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, fear not for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David, a savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. The true sign that you will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. Not a counterfeit sign that we are hearing from in this world. But this prophetic voice from heaven, this angel coming and saying, this is the sign for you. Why can he say this? Because it's already been said in scripture. He's fulfilling the prophecies of Scripture already. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And then verse, skip it down to verse 15 and 16 on the next slide there. It says, when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, which I would have loved to hear that conversation. Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. I wonder if they just left their sheep. You know, you think about it. It's like, like I don't know what you would have done, but you try and put your, your, uh, your feet into those sandals of theirs. Seeing an angel light up the sky and then just this massive, the, the verses that we skipped over are just the, the heavenly host coming and just singing and glorifying God and 
I'm pretty sure I would have just ran away from my sheep looking for this baby. But this cradle, this cradle is and will forever be a symbol of the coming Savior, the offspring of Eve, the better Adam, the better Noah, the better Abraham, the better Isaac, the better Moses, the better David. This is the offspring of Eve, the promised snake crusher. And this is the irony of the cradle, the third point that we're going to cover. And really quickly, I'll close with this. But the irony of the cradle for Jesus is that it wasn't just a sign or a representation of humility, grace, coming for the meek, coming to those that will listen, coming to those in need. It is all of those things. But simply, the cradle was a manger. It was a feeding trough. It was a feeding trough. It was dirty, unclean, a bit disgusting, and maybe even dangerous to lay a newborn baby into it. But a feeding trough. A feeding trough that would most likely be used for sheep. Are you seeing the irony here? Jesus came that we might have life. Jesus came to be a shepherd to the sheep, to be the bread of life, to feed the sheep. Jesus came not only to win salvation over Satan, he came that we might have life and life to the full. And he, friends, is and always will be our eternal nourishment. Always will be. He's the bread of life, the drink. You drink of his eternal salvation. In this Easter, we are reminded that Jesus from the beginning of Scripture to the end is telling one grand story. A story that our creator God loves us so much that he created us, made a covenant with us that we was so one-sided. Like when we think about the covenant of God that was on to Adam and Eve, was so one-sided. They did nothing and he did everything. It was a kingly covenant onto servants. And he is the covenant keeper, not the servants. And because God is so good and a covenant-keeping God, he sent his one and only son to creation to live a holy life that we could not when we broke the covenant. He came that we might have life. It's an amazing story throughout the text of Scripture, prophesied over hundreds of years before he even stood on this earth. See, I began with a story of counterfeit money. Chim Chalice continues his story a few chapters later in his book saying this, knowing and identifying what is false can be done best by knowing and understanding what is true. So to actually find a counterfeit, you need to know what is true. That's the best way to do it. And he continues by saying, the best way to guard yourself against falsehood and false teachers is to know the truth, to spot a counterfeit, study the real thing, Any believer who correctly handles the word of truth and who makes a careful study of the Bible can identify false doctrine. Matthew 24 or 5, I've read this before when we were going through 1 John because it talks of the Antichrist that are in the world today. But in Matthew 24 or 5, it says, For many will come in my name. They'll come in the name of Jesus, saying, I'm anointed, and they'll lead many astray because they twist the word for their gain. We must 
Feed on the truth. We must feed on the truth. Recall the story of the manger. The true snake crusher. The true, not the counterfeit, but the true Lord and Savior. And rejoice in biblically fulfilled prophecy. See, like I said, Bible scholars suggest that there are more than 300 Old Testament prophetic scriptures completed in the life of Jesus. And there is a a manger 2,000 years ago celebrating the birth of the coming offspring of Eve to crush Satan. And shepherds on that day went with urgency and haste to go and tell those around them who this one is. Friends, we are entering into Easter and what better way to to emulate those shepherds to go out into our nations, to go out into our neighborhoods and our workplaces. This is the call. Like when you understand the prophecies that have come true and then the, the Lord revealing himself to you in your heart of hearts and you know without a shadow of doubt that Jesus is the Lord and that you've confessed it with your mouth and believe it upon your heart, then we will act like those shepherds and we will go out into all the areas that we live and proclaim Jesus as our Lord and Savior. So my call to us as a church is let's be shepherds today, this week and weeks to come. Let's, let's be faithful in proclaiming this amazing news. It's such a sweet story. The snake crusher has come. He's come to conquer and to grant us eternal life if we confess with our mouth and believe in our hearts that he is Lord and Savior. See, this Friday at 10 a.m., we will be back here talking about the cross, the next story of 33 years later after he was born, roughly. We're going to talk about the cross and the horrible things that he's gone through. So please be inviting your friends, for this is the story of the gospel that is being proclaimed. We started off really good in the, in the Garden of Eden, and we fell short three chapters later. And the whole story is telling about this snake crusher who has now come. He's not just a snake crusher, but he's the eternal salvation. He's our only hope. May we live that way this week. Let me pray for us. Jesus, our love and adoration for you is weak at best. I can't imagine what those shepherds saw in the evening, but I'm assuming that it sparked in them something that they've never experienced before. And I pray that you will spark something in us that we've never experienced before. That this Easter will be an Easter that will spark a newness of a joy in who you are and what you've done for us. That we will live out of our new identity of Christ's followers. We need and thank you for your amazing grace. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you that you are the covenant-keeping God. We thank you for the forgiveness of sins by way of your sacrifice for our sin. And we thank you for the cross and your victory over sin and death. Jesus, fill us now with your spirit that we might glorify you this week and the weeks to come as long as you delay in your promised return that we might share your amazing love. 
and that those here and those we speak with this week might come to a greater love of you, maybe even for the very first time. And I pray this in your powerful name, Jesus. Amen. Amen.